Dear, oh dear, oh dear. Today's top story is that Labour stalwart, passionate anti-racist campaigner, Diane Abbott, has been suspended from the Labour Party for, I have to say, a pretty stupid email to the Observer. Um, Ash, we are going to be discussing that letter, the reaction to it, whether the suspension was the right thing to do, um, and, and all sorts. Um, I couldn't think of anyone better than you um, to give a, a sort of nuanced response to what's been going on. Um, how's your weekend been? Well, it's been a shit weekend, Michael. I can't lie, because Sunday I wake up with a cracking hangover, just thinking to myself, that's fine. I've got nothing to do. Maybe I'll enjoy watching the football later. And then Diane Abbott has the whip suspended and Spurs lose 6-1 to Newcastle. And I was miserable. The only thing that I can say has been the saving grace of the last 48 hours is that you haven't been replaced by Tucker Carlson because, you know, he's available. Um, so I'm just glad you're here. His leaving Fox was announced quite recently, so there still might be time for Gary to work out who will really get the numbers on YouTube. First story. Diane Abbott has had the Labour whip suspended after sending a rather bizarre and offensive letter into the Observer. And the letter was a response to a piece published the previous week. So this was the piece she was responding to. Racism in Britain is not a black and white issue. It's far more complicated. And that's from Tamiwa Owolade. And the subtext here is a report or a subtitle, sorry, a report on ethnic inequality reveals that Irish, Jewish and traveller people are amongst the most abused. Diane Abbott, in response, wrote this. Tamiwa Owolade claims that Irish, Jewish and traveller people all suffer from racism. They undoubtedly experience prejudice. This is similar to racism and the two words are often used as if they are interchangeable. It is true that many types of white people with points of difference, such as redheads, can experience this prejudice, but they are not all their lives subject to racism. In pre-civil rights America, Irish people, Jewish people and travellers were not required to sit at the back of the bus. In apartheid South Africa, these groups were allowed to vote. And at the height of slavery, there were no white-seeming people manacled on the slave ships. Now, this is a terrible letter. I mean, the, the big things that stand out from this letter, of course, are comparing the racism experienced by travellers and Jews to redheads. Um, bit of an odd comparison. And then also handpicking these events from history. You know, big classic examples that people think of when you think of racist instances in history, apartheid South Africa, um, pre-civil rights America, um, slavery, yes, all really important examples of racism. Big big gap in the middle there is the Holocaust. Right? So if you're picking out big examples from history of racist events and you're saying that Jews aren't suffering from them or travelers aren't suffering from them, why have you ignored that, that big obvious example? So not a good letter. I think we can probably all agree. Um, following a backlash too, um, that letter in The Observer, Diane Abbott posted this apology on Twitter. My statement, I am writing regarding my letter that was recently published in The Observer. I wish to wholly and unreservedly withdraw my remarks and disassociate myself from them. The errors arose in an initial draft being sent, but there is no excuse and I wish to apologise for any anguish caused. Racism takes many forms and it is completely undeniable that Jewish people have suffered its monstrous effects, as have Irish people, travellers and many others. Once again, I would like to apologise publicly for the remarks and any distress caused as a result of them. So a very different message. The message is very different from the letter which was sent to the Observer. I, I wonder what changed in the interim. All a little bit confusing. Um, the damage, though, of course, was already done. Diane Abbott had the whip suspended. Um, and these were Keir Starmer's comments this morning. What she wrote yesterday, I utterly condemn. And um, I said... 
Uh, we would tear out anti-Semitism by its roots. I meant it, and that's why we acted so swiftly yesterday. Um, I think it's a mark of how far the Labour Party has changed that we acted so swiftly and that we take it so seriously. But I condemn what she said. Uh, but I'm specifically saying, is it anti-Semitic what she wrote yesterday, in no. your view? I, I condemn what she said. But There's it, obviously it, an investigation. So There's an investigation going on now. But look, I don't think anybody can doubt uh, the change in the Labour Party when you see that swifter action um, and our absolute commitment to zero tolerance. I mean, the editor of the Jewish Chronicle says that it takes a lot to surprise me when it comes to anti-Semitism, but for sheer ignorant malice, it's hard to think of a worse example than Mrs. Abbott's words yesterday. You've seen the words, you've read them. In your view, is what Diana Abbott wrote yesterday anti-Semitic or not? In my view, what she said was uh, to be condemned. It was anti-Semitic. Uh, it's absolutely right that we acted as swiftly as we did. That's the change that you've seen in the Labour Party. But do I condemn what she said? I absolutely condemn what she said. Um, do I want to show the Labour Party takes this seriously and acts very quickly? Yes, I do. And that's why we acted as swiftly as we did yesterday. So if you say you've got a zero tolerance approach to all of this, and you've just said it is anti-Semitic, surely she cannot stand as a Labour candidate at the next election? Well, as you know, there's an investigation going on um, at the what, moment. For what reason, uh, though? There's an investigation going on at the moment. That's the right thing. The whip has been suspended. Uh, that was done very, very swiftly. And I have condemned what she said, along with many other people. But what's the purpose of the investigation? I mean, you've read her words. You've judged it as anti-Semitic. What's this investigation to find out she's apologised? Surely she cannot stand as a Labour candidate if you've got a genuine zero-tolerance approach. I think everybody understands that there has to be an investigation in every case. And nobody has said to me there shouldn't be an investigation. What they want to see is a Labour Party that demonstrates um, by its actions that it's changed, um, that it does have zero tolerance. And that's why we acted as quickly as we did yesterday. Now, I have to say, I find it quite unpleasant that journalists sort of trying to goad Keir Starmer into saying, yes, this person can't stand in the next general election, especially considering she was the first black woman elected to parliament, has suffered so much racism throughout her career and has been a real anti-racist fighter, much more than either of those two people taking part in that conversation. At the same time, Ash, I mean, what was she thinking? It was a terrible letter, wasn't it? There's three things that I want to talk about. One thing I want to talk about is the politics of it. So the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, the general context. The second thing is how Diane's letter is being understood and talked about. And then the third thing is the letter itself. So starting first with the interview you just saw with Keir Starmer, what you saw is him being led down the garden path by a journalist who doesn't really care about this as a story about racism. The journalist cares about it as a Labour anti-Semitism story. And so that needs certain components. It needs a left-wing MP who's been accused of anti-Semitism, in this case, Diane Abbott. And it needs enough pressure on Keir Starmer to get him to do what he likes best, which is saying, this is anti-Semitism. I'm going to tear it out by the roots. There's a zero tolerance approach. Now, quite plainly, there isn't a uniformly implemented zero-tolerance approach to racism in the Labour Party. And I'm not just talking about anti-blackness and Islamophobia, but I'm talking about anti-Semitism as well. You've got two other MPs. You've got Steve Reid and you've got uh, Barry, Barry Sherman, I think his name is. Steve Reid said that a Jewish Tory donor was a puppet master, which is an anti-Semitic trope. And I think in the case of Barry Shearman, he talked about shekels 
being used by Jewish members of the House of Lords. All right. So two very anti-Semitic tweets. And for those individuals, they were simply allowed to apologize. There wasn't the whip being withdrawn and there wasn't an investigation. It was just an apology. And that was it. So this idea that there is a uniform zero tolerance approach to anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is a fiction. It is a fiction. It is only zero tolerance when there is a factional advantage to be secured because it further marginalizes the left or because it's part of that anti-Semitism narrative that the press talk about where it's only about the left, well, then there's enough pressure. And so you've got to be seen to be acting tough on it. So that's exactly what you saw in that interview. It wasn't a principled zero tolerance stance on racism. We know there isn't a zero tolerance stance on racism in the Labour Party, because unlike Angela Smith can be a member again. Um, and there certainly isn't a zero tolerance approach to even anti-Semitism specifically as a type of racism. Then you've got the kind of reaction to Diane Abbott's letter. I think it's undeniable that amongst certain sections, there is a form of glee about this because Diane Abbott, because she's on the left, because she has been an anti-racist campaigner all her life, and because she's a black woman, has been a target for the right in this country. I mean, during the 2017 general election, she received more that, more abuse than any other MP put together. Um, she's somebody who has been disparaged, smeared, her name dragged through the mud. And she's someone who has had to develop a real resilience to all of that kind of stuff. There wasn't ever very performative displays of solidarity with Diane Abbott because it didn't serve a factional point. And the factional point that was being made at that time is that the left are nasty, the left are mean, the left are racist. They've got a particular problem with anti-Semitism. Now, what we've all seen subsequently, uh, particularly from the really good reporting that's been done by Al Jazeera's Labour Files, from the leaked report, which also detailed a really toxic culture inside Labour HQ, is that anti-Semitism, rather than being treated as a very serious form of racism, which it is, was being used as a political weapon. It was being used to cast the left in a negative light. And in fact, there were also instances where action on anti-Semitism was being made deliberately difficult by staffers who wanted to make Jeremy Corbyn and the leadership look bad. Right. That's something which happened. The thing that I want to say about um, Diane Abbott's letter is that there is a nuanced discussion to be had about how different forms of racism impact different groups. A really good example of this is that as a South Asian woman, my experiences of racism will be very, very different from, for example, the traveler community or indeed young black guys. I'm very unlikely to be stopped and searched on account of uh, my class and my race and my gender. Of course, I have an elevated chance of being stopped and such compared to a white woman of a similar class background. But for a young black guy in London, um, you know, his chances of being stopped and searched, I think, are nine times worse than his counterparts. Um, a form of racism, which I'm not going to face, but that the traveler community have to deal with is being refused service point blank by hotels, by pubs uh, and in restaurants. Um, that's certainly a form of racism. Um, Jewish people are certainly victims of racism, not simply prejudice, which are sort of instances of interpersonal dislike, um, but 
a, a systemic problem of racism. That's something which affects Jewish people to this day, and it has certainly affected Jewish people throughout history. It's something which has affected Irish people throughout history. And so that's why I think that Diane Abbott was wrong to draw this distinction between prejudice and racism and saying that, well, because Irish people, because uh, the traveler community, because some Jewish people can pass for white, what they experienced isn't racism. I just think that that's historically and that's politically wrong. Um, Not only does it ride roughshod over the real history of persecution that these groups have faced, I think what it also does is it closes down the room for that more nuanced nuanced conversation about how different groups experience racism. Um, I think that it's it's difficult to have that conversation when you're in an envi- in an environment of such low trust, right? Where I think because of the way in which the anti-Semitism story has taken place in the media, where I think it has been used to silence people of color, in particular black people and Muslims, from being able to talk about their experiences of racism. And because of the way in which I think Jewish people in this country have been made to feel so afraid of the left um, because of that really relentless drumbeat that you saw in political media, means that you don't have the sort of trust and empathy which allows you to have those sorts of conversations about, well, what are the differences in people's experiences? What are the material differences in some of those experiences? How does this play out differently for different groups in terms of discrimination in the labor market or things like um, household wealth or vulnerability to detention and deportation? Um, You can't have that nuanced conversation because of the environment that it takes place in. So I think she was wrong to write that letter. But what you can see from the sorts of responses from journalists, from the fact that it's, you know, zero tolerance for one and not the other, from the fact that even now people are operating a hierarchy of racism by only mentioning anti-Semitism in Jewish people and totally erasing the fact that Diane Abbott was also talking about Irish people and traveler people, that shows you that this isn't something which is happening in good faith. This isn't something which is happening because people take racism very, very seriously. It's happening because it's politically expedient for people who want to further marginalize the left and further stop people like Diane Abbott, who have put their heads above the parapet all their lives in fighting racism. They want to silence them in particular. One thing that's a bit baffling about this is that it was a letter to a newspaper, right? So I think obviously. You know, people, when they make complex points, often do it clumsily, right? It happens. And I think we should be very understanding and forgiving of that. Uh, you know, people send dumb tweets. People in the middle of sort of heated conversations might say something they don't really mean and then roll back on it. But it does seem, it is a bit baffling. And I think this is why lots of people are so frustrated about this, because, you know, we all have so much respect for Diana, but she, she clearly has fought a lot about racism in her life, been subject to loads of it. Very thoughtful, intelligent person. So it is a bit like, how... How did she get to the point where she wrote a letter that she subsequently said she didn't agree with? You know, a letter normally you do. I mean, she said it was the first draft that went, not the second draft. Do you know what I mean, Ash? So like, how are you? I mean, I don't think either of us have insider information here, but, you know, (laughs) how should we think about this? Neither of us know why Diane Abbott came to the decision to write that letter and send it to the Observer. Also, the Observer, as we all know, editorially is opposed to the left of the Labour Party. And if you wanted to be treated by 
newspaper in a fair way and, you know, make sure that your words were construed properly. I wouldn't trust them with my words. Now, I'm not suggesting that her words were being deliberately misconstrued. I'm just saying that as a leftist, that wouldn't be a newspaper that I trusted. So I think that there is a real error of judgment here. The writing of the letter, the sending of the letter, the content of the letter. I think that anybody who has been at the front line of politics in the way that Diane Abbott has for a very long time would be more than aware of the kind of context that you're speaking in. This is a really delicate subject surrounded by landmines and everyone is waiting for you as a left-wing Labour MP, as a black woman, to fuck up. And that's the sad thing about this, which is it's a letter which you can't defend the content. You can't defend the judgment of sending it. And you can also see the weaponization of the response to try and serve political ends. And it's really sad to me. It's just deeply sad that, you know, a woman who has so much credibility in fighting racism because she's done that for the entirety of her career. She was the first black woman elected to parliament and she's always been somebody who's been an outspoken critic of government policies, making interventions on stop and search, talking about the Windrush scandal. It's so sad to see that this one letter is now going to be used to try and define who she is as a person rather than all of those other things. Now, I'm not saying that it means that the letter should just be brushed over and you shouldn't criticize the content of it. But I think that, I just think that it also doesn't wipe out all of the other really good things that she's done with her time in politics. I mean, I 100% agree with that. And I do, you know, I, I do, I, I think the whole situation is just incredibly unfortunate and kind of horrible to watch, especially the glee with which people are now calling Diane Abbott a racist. You know, so many people who have not suffered racism, not, you've got all these white people on the telly talking about how racist Diane Abbott is. And it's just like, come on. I mean, obviously, stupid letter, offensive letter, you know, offensive letter, terrible understanding of racism expressed in that letter. And it is, it's, it's confusing to know how it was sent. Um, but I 100% agree with you, Ash, that doesn't, that doesn't erase all the brilliant work that Diane Abbott has, has done over literally decades. Next story. Last week, Extinction Rebellion, also known as XR, delivered these two demands to the government. We must end all new licenses, approvals and funding for fossil fuel projects as we begin a transition to a fair society centred on reparatory justice for all on Earth. And number two, and the UK government must create emergency citizens' assemblies to lead on fair long-term solutions to the most urgent issues of our time. XR set a deadline of 5pm today for the government to respond. And 5pm has come and gone and there's been no word from those in power. So what now? The deadline was set for the end of a four-day-long protest called The Big One that brought together over 200 climate activist groups. On Friday, thousands of people from across the country came to London to protest the government's lack of action on climate change. They filled Parliament Square, held pickets outside government departments. The goal has been to build a broad coalition of climate activists, creating an umbrella that could include activists who might have stayed away from direct action. But now that the government has missed its deadline... What's next? I'm joined now by Extinction Rebellion spokesperson Nula Lam. Um, let's start with this deadline. 
Um, there was a deadline for 5 p.m. It's been missed. I don't think anyone in Extinction Rebellion is surprised the government hasn't responded to the ultimatum. Um, but what does happen now is the idea that sort of you had a weekend of fluffy actions and and now the ultimatum has been missed. Now you start doing the spiky stuff again. You start blocking roads or taking illegal action. Is that what's going to happen next? I guess the deadline is the start of, you know, you said, like you said, we brought together this coalition of over 200 groups. Uh, I think the Met said that there was about 90,000 people there on Saturday. If you look at the membership of those groups, it's collective membership in the tens of millions. So this is when we start planning together. This is when we start working together on what comes next. And so we held a series of people's assemblies for people to get together today and discuss what comes next. And interestingly, you know, people were presented with several pathways, you know, ranging from civil disobedience, disruptive law-breaking action down to much softer things. And 80% of people said they wanted to engage in civil disobedience. So it does definitely look like there's going to be more of that coming. So is that potentially what this was about? You know, you, you, you get a lot of people in for something softer. It's much more inclusive then if it doesn't get the attention that sort of the direct stuff gets, you sort of see if all of those people who turned up to this soft action actually democratically decide they want to get spikier now. Is that what we're, is that how I should interpret what you've just said? I think that's part of it. And, and you know, all those people who turned up, 90,000 people, that's a big deal. That's, you know, that hasn't happened in recent history as far as I'm aware. And we had almost blanket ignoring of, of that fact by the by the British media. The Guardian only republished something by PA from a newswire. So none of their journalists wrote a single word despite 90,000 people gathering at the seat of power. So, so I think that it, it provides a, a useful opportunity for everyone who got involved to look at that and say, okay, you know, I really didn't like disruption. Maybe I thought Extinction Rebellion engaged in it because they like it. And sure, some people probably do, but we engage in it primarily because it's effective. You know, that's why we do it. And I think for some of us who've been around since the start of Extinction Rebellion, it was deeply uncomfortable to do something that wasn't disruptive. You know, it was really super uncomfortable to, to do this fluffy thing and to see the media ignore it because we, we do know that's what happens. And yet there's some really useful things that have come out of this. You know, my dad was at the protest. He brought a friend from his village who he'd knocked on his door, you know, when he was out canvassing. Never been to a protest before. I heard countless stories like that. So people have made connections. You know, other NGOs who are much softer have come out onto the streets with us and had a good experience, you know, seeing that we're, we keep our word, that we're easy to work with, that we're friendly, that they might enjoy spending time on the ground with us. So many, many useful seeds I've have been planted, I think, despite it being a bit uncomfortable for some of us. And I suppose let's talk about the demand. So when it comes to sort of a, a climate change demand, the big thing is to stop oil and gas um, or stop new exploration for oil and gas. I mean, is that is that the sum total of your demands when it comes to climate change? Because I suppose, you know, you could, you could say there are so many different issues, there are so many different actions that the government needs to take to sort of stop us going towards climate catastrophe, that maybe oil and gas Stopping exploration for that isn't enough. Why, why have you settled on that as the key climate demand? It's strategically quite a useful demand because it, what, for one, it's, an, it's pretty inevitable. It's got to happen soon. The International Energy Agency have asked for it. They've said, you know, beyond 2021, there couldn't be any new oil and gas if we were to meet net zero by 2050, which is way too late as it is. So, so it's useful in that it's inevitable. It's a winnable demand. I think it's also a demand that would show us a real see change in where things are. So it, it hurts a lot of the government's mates to do something like that. 
And and that's the sort of thing we never see them do. You know, they, they'll say all sorts of things, but there's nothing that will ever hurt the bottom line of their friends. And so I think it's another useful demand in that sense. It's where a lot of the environmental space and the climate space are coalescing in terms of movement. So it's it's a useful one to, for people to rally around. But yeah, this is like really far ranging it. You know, it's going to define the lives of everyone alive on this planet today. It's going to it's going to be the defining factor in in both of our lives and everyone watching. So it, it definitely is way beyond new oil and gas for sure. And uh, let's talk about the second demand as well. I suppose there's a couple of things to say about it. So this this idea that we should have a citizens assembly. I mean, I think some yeah. people have often seen it as sort of this sort of extra add on because XR are a bit anarcho, you know, so the, the real demands are about climate change. That's what everyone can unite behind. Whether or not you into a citizens assembly is a bit neither here nor there. I mean, is but it's now one of your two key demands. Is that Should we take it that you think this citizens assembly is as important as the stopping the oil and the gas? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're often seen as as solely climate focused and we are. But the, the climate crisis is not really a climate issue. It's it's the kind of ultimate expression of the crisis in our politics and our society. And, and Citizens Assembly is really a solution that is is very useful in the face of the climate crisis, because these are such hard decisions to make if you're on a five year election cycle, like who wants to tell people they can't drive an SUV anymore or or whatever it is that the flights are going to get more expensive. No one wants to do that. So they they provide a means to give politicians a mandate to, you know, to, to make these really tough decisions. But they also provide a way to transform our society. You know, if you put decision making in the hands of ordinary people, like, you know, when, when COVID hit, ordinary people organized mutual aid groups. They organized to like take care of the elderly. They and they organized um, to like work together in their communities. Politicians got busy like doing dodgy deals on PPE. So that's the like qualitative difference between what we're talking about here. Um, so, but I also want to say, I think, I think like our citizens assembly demand has been perceived as kind of naive. And I, I would say like, for me personally, I don't, I don't think it's going to be handed to us on a plate by the current government or probably even a Labour government, depending on the circumstances. But I do think we're headed for a massive political crisis sometime in the next decade. And it's likely to be a crisis that's that's spurred by food shortages. You know, we import about 50 percent of our food here in the UK and it's coming from places that are already worse affected than us, like Egypt and, and other places in the global south. So you in that situation where you have kind of um, social breakdown or the political system is kind of um, rocking at its knees, you really want good pro-social, pro-human ideas lying around. And, and we think this is this is one of them. Let's go to our next story. Dominic Raab's resignation has prompted a flurry of venom directed at British civil servants. And their so-called sensitivity is being blamed for pretty much everything. And now that includes the failure of Britain to evacuate people from Sudan. It's not like this came out of nowhere. Trouble has been brewing. Even I know, and I have a passing knowledge of that part of the world, even I've been seeing on the world news pages that it's been getting a bit troublesome in Sudan. Why the hell was the ambassador and the deputy away? Now, if there's some vital job that has to be, the ambassador has to attend, okay, I get it. I would suggest, mm, I think 
I'm assuming it's a he. I don't know. Can we find out who the ambassador of Sudan is, please? I think he, she had better stay there. Certainly you and the deputy don't come away. So who does that track back to again, John? Well, that would be the civil service. So I know, John, you're probably the sort of person who never shouts at anyone, and despite the fact that the stories you filed are utterly incorrect and you've cost this company millions of pounds and you're an incompetent, unprofessional, poor journalist, but don't worry, I'm going to embrace you and tell you you've done a fantastic job. The reality of life sometimes is a little different, and this could be a situation in which... Because a few civil servants can't take the odd hard word without having to race off to the prior and have a lie down in a darkened room, because they are those sort of people, we've got Brits stuck in Sudan. But as long as no one gets shouted at, because you wouldn't want to shout at anybody if you're trying to rescue people from possible death, would you? So Nick Ferrari thinks people are stuck in Sudan because, quote, a few civil servants can't take the odd hard word without having to race off to the priory and have a lie down in a darkened room. Now, remember, this bashing of workers is only happening because Dominic Raab wants to blame someone else for him being found to have bullied his staff. And yes, of course, you might remember that's the same Dominic Raab who himself stayed at the beach when Kabul in Afghanistan was being evacuated. So a much bigger screw up than is currently what we're seeing in Sudan, uh, the failure to evacuate properly from Afghanistan. So many people who've been working with the British military who we had a real direct responsibility to. Yes, we have a direct responsibility to people in Sudan as well, but there were many more in Afghanistan. That fuck up was because Dominic Raab was at the beach. Dominic Raab, who's now calling everyone else a snowflake. So why does Ferrari assume any failure is because staffers are too sensitive rather than simply our government being incompetent? Why? Could it be because he has an agenda to push? That agenda, of course, is demanding workers accept bullying and poor condition. And it's been pushed all weekend. The Telegraph published this. Dominic Raab's resignation is a victory for the work-shy civil service. Think what you like about the former deputy PM, but the broken bureaucracy is now undeniably failing Britain. That's from Camilla Tomney, associate editor at The Telegraph. This was Nigel Farage's take. I have no doubt that Raab was absolutely right to call the civil servant utterly useless. This woke, weak culture that sees him resign over such a thing explains why our country is in decline. Ash, what do you make of this? Following Dominic Raab resigning because he was found to have bullied a staff member, we're seeing this backlash from across the right, which is to say, oh, workers have it too good. Workers now are constantly complaining. They want to have time off work when they're having mental health problems. They don't want to get bullied by their bosses. This is the problem with society. It's people being too sensitive and people having too high expectations for how they should be treated in the workplace. The first thing you've got to understand about political media especially is that it is stuffed to the gills with raging egoists who treat the people who work under them like they're total scum and think it's totally justified by their own prestige and status. So when you've got a story that somebody who they are politically in alignment with because he's a conservative and you're a right-wing pundit or politician turned pundit like Nigel Farage, it speaks to all of your prejudices about, oh, they just can't handle someone who's really, really excellent. And they're all just too stupid and weak and inefficient, unlike me, Nick Ferrari. Um, so I think it's something which plays to a lot of their prejudices. It's also part of a wider culture war narrative where 
it's millennials and Generation Z who are sensitive and unable to cope with the demands of the real world. Now, interestingly, when you look at the report into Dominic Raab's conduct, one of the things which is pointed out is that a lot of these allegations haven't come from inexperienced, you know, fresh out of university civil servants. Lots of them had been working at quite senior levels for years. So this concoction of it's all just millennial snowflakes is an invention of government spin doctors essentially playing to the prejudices and the presumptions of a media class which doesn't value the truth more than they value their own hobby horses. Um, And I also think that it connects to this kind of wider theme that we've been seeing when it comes to the likes of The Telegraph and lots of people who are at LBC and Nigel Farage and all them lot. We saw it when it came to this idea of lockdown, you know, oh, these workers need to be protected, idiots, uh, from the deadly virus, which is transmitted um, through the air. Uh, And the way in which they talk about working from home as though it's going to be the collapse of Western civilization. I think that they are just ideologically and implacably opposed to the idea that workers have rights and you can't ride roughshod over them and that they're going to speak up when you treat them like crap. And I think there's also a kind of awareness that people's wages aren't going that far anymore. Um, Everybody is noticing the impact of, you know, eggs being 18% more expensive than they were a couple of months ago. And when you've got a context of, all right, pay is going down and People are in senior management roles and behaving in ways which are hostile or aggressive or rude or, you know, micromanaging. They're not going to be able to get away with it in the same way because you can't just go, oh, well, I get paid for it. It's fine. You're like, wait a minute, motherfucker. I don't even get paid enough for you to treat me this way. So I think that that's why they're kind of having this outsized reaction to the Dominic Raab stuff because Dominic Raab stands in for every other crappy boss who is now, you know, harassing and intimidating and haranguing increasingly underpaid staff. I think we can summarise right-wingers really hate the idea of there being consequences for bullying, for treating your workers badly. It turns out they also hate the idea of there being consequences for sexual harassment. Now, this is a story in the FT. Tougher UK legislation on workplace sexual harassment set to be shelved. More than 40 amendments by Tory backbench peers is likely to time out a private member's bill. Now, we should look in detail what the nature of that bill which Tory Lords has blocked is. And this is the context from the FT. The government first carried out a consultation on sexual harassment in the workplace nearly four years ago. In a response published in July 2021, ministers said they would impose a new proactive duty on employers to take all reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment in workplaces in advance. Another change would be that employers would not only be responsible for preventing harassment from other colleagues, but also from customers and clients. And they say ministers had originally planned to include the policy in a broader employment bill, but that was dropped more than a year ago. Instead, they have given their support to a cross-party private members bill led by Liberal Democrat MP Vera Hobhouse called the Worker Protection Amendment of Equality Act 2010 bill. So as you can see, there was going to be this big broad package of workers' protections that got dropped. Now the government, instead of fallen in behind this private members bill from a Lib Dem, but 
That's now being blocked by Tory backbenchers and lords. The bare minimum now seems to be out of the window and campaigners are outraged. So referencing the sexual harassment currently engulfing, or sexual harassment sort of scandal, sorry, currently engulfing the CBI, so the Chamber of Business and Industry, the chief executive of the Fawcett Society said this. It's all very well the government saying they won't engage with the CBI while this is going on. What we should be seeing is a serious commitment to sexual harassment not happening, not being outraged when it does. They should be seriously getting behind the only serious legislative change we've seen in Britain come out of the Me Too movement. So she's saying this is the only serious change or legislative change that's come out of the Me Too movement. They should be getting behind it, not accepting it will fall. TUC General Secretary Paul Novak also is unimpressed. He says, it would be utterly shameful if the government allows this bill to fall. Ministers promised to bring in new laws to tackle sexual harassment, but are now backsliding under pressure from backbenchers. Every day we hear stories about how endemic sexual harassment is in our workplaces. And we know many in public facing jobs like shop workers and GP receptionists suffer abuse and harassment regularly from clients and customers. Rishi Sunak must not abandon vulnerable staff. These protections are essential. So they seem like fairly reasonable arguments to me being made there. But of course, this is being thrown out or this is being blocked by Tory peers. Tory backbenchers are also opposed. But why? Why have they got such a problem with this bill? Well, the Telegraph reports this. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the former business secretary, said establishments that serve the public can expect to run a police state in their business. While Sir John Hayes, the chairman of the Common Sense Group of Tory MPs, said it had, quote, sinister implications. Another Conservative MP, Craig McKinley, said he believed the change was draconian and Lord Frost, the former cabinet office minister, described the bill as a woke socialist measure that would have a chilling effect on every conversation in the workplace. Ash, the reason I put these stories together is I think you are seeing quite a similar thing, which is this backlash against workers expecting to be treated right in the workplace. So when it came to Dominic Raab, it was, you don't want to be bullied by your boss. Here it's, you want your bosses to have to put in due protections to protect staffers from sexual harassment. And in both cases, you've got all these right wingers saying, no, 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 no. Workers should be able to be bullied by their bosses. And here we can't have laws which protect people from sort of sexual harassment, because that would be in the words of this Lord, woke socialism. It makes you worry about what kinds of conversations these gentlemen are having in the workplace. If they think that new legislation to clamp down on sexual harassment in the workplace is going to mean that there's a police state monitoring every conversation in the office and that everyone's got something to fear. Now, obviously, something like sexual harassment is something that you've both got to take seriously and also not craft legislation so tightly that you end up, you know, criminalizing reasonable behavior. But the fact is, is that for lots of people in lots of workplaces, they are left basically entirely unprotected to unwanted sexual advances, which are persistent enough to cause a problem. We're not just talking about a one-off or someone paying you a compliment that you don't like one time. We're talking about repeated advances. And I can give you, I can give you a couple of, of examples. I remember when I was, you know, at uni, working in a pub, it was a really common thing that you would stay late to close up. And it was very often me or another woman who worked behind the bar who would stay behind to close up because we were two of the most experienced bar staff on hand. And it happened to be in the run-up to Christmas time, which everyone knows it's really, really busy and you get a lot of office parties in and people get very drunk. It happened to be 
my colleague who'd stayed behind to close up. We'd had an office party from one of the corporates across the road. And there had been a guy who had just been hitting on her and hitting on her and hitting on her, which isn't that unusual when you're working in a pub and people are drunk. And then he followed her home. So it was very late at night. She was by herself. She'd closed up the pub and he followed her home. And afterwards, she did what anybody would do. She reported it to the landlady of the pub and she said, look, I want to, I don't ever want to serve him again. I don't think he should be welcome here. And the message back from the landlady was, well, you know, we make a lot of money from them. They're regular customers. They're, you know, the office across the road, lots of them come here. We can't, you know, we're not going to lose their business. And it was really shit. It was really shit that you could have this, you know, egregious example of sexual harassment where it was putting somebody's safety at risk. She's being followed home at night. Anything could have happened. And the message was, okay, well, they're a customer. We rely on them for income. So sorry, not going to take even the bare minimum steps uh, to stop him from coming in here. What we ended up doing as bar staff is that we all just had an agreement not to serve him and never served him again. But there should be more pressure on an employer to go, okay, well, I have a responsibility to make sure that you don't experience that again, rather than, oh, you're on your own. And I think that that's not just in hospitality hospitality jobs where you see that kind of behavior. I think in lots of sales jobs, there's often a kind of unwritten code that the people who are trying to make the sale are part of the deal. You know, you can harass them, you can make all sorts of advances. And again, it's something where if you introduce this kind of legislation, which puts a preventative responsibility on the employer, you can no longer have these kind of shady practices operating in plain sight. So I can see why the conservatives are are worried from their ideological pro-boss standpoint. It's because actually sexual harassment is baked in to a lot of worker-customer interaction. And they don't want the idea that the extraction of profit might be interrupted by something as basic as human decency. I mean, it's also, it gets kind of repetitive, these stories, doesn't it? Because, you you know, most of the time, the Tory government is proactively trying to push through legislation that will make people's lives more miserable. So let's look at migration, for example. What they really want to do is stop people having the right to claim asylum here that they have had for a, for a long time. But then you get these few glimmers of, oh, maybe actually they're going to put forward some legislation that will be, you know, remotely positive. It will have these sort of slivers of benefits for the general population. So I think this, this, legislation relating to sexual harassment in the workplace would probably have been one of them. The rental reform bill is another one we can talk about. So that was going to give people a bit more, a a few more rights compared to their landlords or when the Tories were trying to say, let's increase house building. But then in each of those circumstances, when you have a sliver of benefit that you might just get from Tory legislation, it can't pass because you get these Tory backbenchers that are against it. And then the government doesn't want to rely on Labour votes. It doesn't want to be tough with their backbenchers, either in the Lords or in the Commons. And then so the uh, the, modi- the the modicum of sort of civilised legislation that a Conservative government have sort of considered putting forward, that all gets stopped by their Tory backbenchers. So all we get is the stuff to make our lives worse. You know, it's fairly depressing analysis of current politics, but I think there is a lot to it. Let's go to our final story. America's most successful and most controversial news anchor has left Fox News. Here's how the network is putting it. 
We have some news from within our Fox family. Fox News Media and Tucker Carlson have mutually agreed to part ways. Tucker's last show was this past Friday. And starting tonight, Fox News Tonight will air live at 8 p.m. Eastern. It will be an interim show with rotating Fox News personalities until a new host is named. We want to thank Tucker Carlson for his service to the network as a host and prior to that as a long-term contributor. Carlson's departure follows Fox News settling a defamation lawsuit with Dominion Voting Systems that resulted in the network paying out a whopping $787 million for spreading fake news about the 2020 presidential election being stolen. Carlson was a key figure in that lawsuit, having several times floated the conspiracy theory on air while recognising it was false in private texts. Here's just one example. These texts were sent between Tucker Carlson and producer Alex Pfeiffer on November the 8th, 2020. Um, so Carlson says the software shit is absurd. And then Pfeiffer says to Carlson, I don't think there is evidence of voter fraud that swung the election. Now, the very next day, Tucker Carlson said this on his show. We could go on tonight about what happened in last week's election and in future shows, you know that we will. But for now, let's sum it up. Here's the point. We don't know how many votes were stolen on Tuesday night. We don't know anything about the software that many say was rigged. We don't know. We ought to find out. But here's what we do know. On a larger level, at the highest levels, actually, our system isn't what we thought it was. It's not as fair as it should be. Not even close. Sorry, hate to say that. It's the milk bottles at the fair. They knew you were coming. They laughed at you when you left. We wish that wasn't true. But it is true. And you are not crazy for knowing it. You're right. So saying one thing in private in a completely different thing in his outraged tone of voice to the Fox News audience. That guy was not fussed about misleading people. Also embarrassing for the network were some of Carlson's private comments about Donald Trump, like this one sent after the Capitol riots in January 2021. So this is from Tucker Carlson. We are very, very close to being able to ignore Trump most nights. I truly can't wait. I want nothing more. It does feel very close. I imagine things will get nice around mid-February. I hate him passionately. I blew up at Peter Navarro today in frustration. I actually like Peter, but I can't take much more of this. So you can see why potentially that would be another reason for Fox to part ways with Carlson. If they're going to back Donald Trump um, in the primaries, which it will probably be expensive for them not to do, they don't want to have Carlson sort of fronting the operation because it will be so clear um, that when he is, you know, if he were to sort of shift to this sort of pro-Trump position again, it would seem disingenuous because he's been saying something different in private. Um, Carlson is likely to be a significant, if expensive, loss for the channel. In 2020, his show Tucker Carlson Tonight broke the record for the highest rated US cable news program in history. And his leaving might be a significant loss for the Republicans too. In 2022, he became the number one host watched across all networks for Democrats under the age of 54. So it's a Republican network, a Republican show, but Democrats are watching it too. Perhaps though, um, people weren't tuning in just for the facts. You know, they weren't, they weren't tuning in because they wanted to hear someone they trusted and someone who they thought would give them the bare truth um, when it came to how voting machines worked or who was really the, the, the presidential candidate with the most integrity, but rather for bizarre entertainment. Like this moment, M&Ms were pushing intolerance, but they were, they've been changed. You're seeing the changes right now on your screen. The green M&M you will notice is no longer wearing sexy boots. Now she's wearing sensible sneakers. Why the change? Well, according to M&Ms, quote, we all win when we see more women in leading roles. 
because leading women do not wear sexy boots. Leading women wear frumpy shoes. The frumpier, the better. That's the rule. The other big change is that the brown M&M has, quote, transitioned from high stilettos to lower block heels. Also less sexy. That's progress. M&Ms will not be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous. Until the moment you wouldn't want to have a drink with any one of them. That's the goal. When you're totally turned off, we've achieved equity. They've won. Meanwhile, in a nod to the burgeoning wellness movement, the orange M&M will, quote, acknowledge and embrace his anxiety. And actually, if you look at him, the orange M&M does appear very anxious. Maybe he doesn't like all the ugly new shoes he sees around him. Maybe he liked the sexy boots. Maybe the orange M&M is a secret sexist himself. Ash, with Tucker Carlson gone from Fox News, who is going to be fighting for sexy shoes for the M&Ms? I mean, this is where I agree with Tucker Carlson, and I'm worried about you men and the crisis of masculinity that you're facing. Nay, the chemical castration being imposed on all of you when you are robbed of your God-given right to want to fuck the M&M. <laughs> you know? <laughs> That is your right as a man. I remember when men were men, women were women, and the green M&M was fuckable, <laughs> you know? Whereas now we've got too many genders and the orange M&M has embraced his anxiety. Um, I mean, what's kind of interesting about Tucker Carlson is that he is a total cynic. He does not believe in anything. And yet he is able to pantomime this kind of permanent outrage, perfectly speaking to the prejudices and the paranoia of an increasingly radicalized American right. And that is his talent. And I think that there are lots of people in the media who operate in that way. They don't believe in anything, but they're able to play act at outrage and stimulate those kinds of responses in other people. And part of how it works is, as you saw with the Eminem clip, as fucking stupid as it is, is that it's in conversation with this kind of, you know, deranged corporate culture, which is trying to adjust to some of the cultural and social shifts in the United States, where, sure, you still have rampant sexual harassment, you've got dire rape conviction rates, and you still have grotesque levels of police violence targeting black people, but you've got more racial diversity and I don't know, the Moomins or whatever, and there's now a feminist Eminem. And so when you've got these two things in conversation with each other, this mad corporate culture, which at the same time is presiding over record levels of inequality, and then you've got this increasingly um, paranoid, conspiratorial white nationalist Republican base, that's a kind of media environment that a figure like Tucker Carlson was able to exploit and do very well out of. Now, as for why he has been jettisoned so very quickly, I think it's a combination of things rather than any one factor, though of course there might be some secret stipulation in the Dominion settlement that we don't know about. But what we know about Rupert Murdoch, and this will have been a Rupert Murdoch personal assassination here is that he is very, very unsentimental when it comes to getting rid of people who he thinks no longer serve 
his interests. So I think you've got the issue of the Dominion lawsuit. Um, you know, it's nearly $800 million, which is a lot of money any way you slice it. You've got the upcoming Republican primaries where it looks like Trump is still ahead of his closest competitors. So there'll be pressure on Fox News to swing in behind him and certainly will have to for a presidential election. And then you've got, I think, what we're going to discuss, which is upcoming lawsuits at which Tucker Carlson is once more at the center. So when politically he no longer serves his interests and he's costing Rupert Murdoch's company an awful lot of money, that's when you see the kind of Logan Roy kick in, where I'm not even going to fire you myself. I'm going to get, you know, my fifth assistant to fax it to you. Um, And that's always been the nature of the Murdoch media empire. And I think that Tucker Carlson knew that and understood that. He was able to game that to his advantage for very many years and become very rich and influential doing so, but it doesn't last forever. The context you were sort of intimating towards there, Ash, we've got a quote from the New York Times. Mr. Carlson is also facing a lawsuit from a former Fox News producer, Abby Grossberg, who claims that he presided over a misogynistic and discriminatory workplace culture. Ms. Grossberg said in the lawsuit, which was filed in March, that on her first day working for Mr. Carlson, she discovered the workspace was decorated with large pictures of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi wearing a swimsuit. Um, Who would have guessed that someone who... I suppose openly on TV talks about how they want M&Ms to be sexy again would be a bit of a creep in the workplace. Of course, I'm sure he denies um, all of those allegations. Um, Any final thoughts on uh, Carlson getting the boot, Ash? I mean, just on the Grossberg lawsuit, we're going to have to see how that goes. But there, of course, was the litany of sexual harassment allegations, which eventually brought down Roger Isles, who had been the chair of Fox News. Now, it had been alleged that he had sexually harassed Gretchen Carlson, Megyn Kelly, I believe maybe Laura Ingraham as well. And that was something which caused a huge headache for Rupert Murdoch. So if there was going to be another set of fresh allegations concerning a dyed-in-the-wool reactionary, creating an appalling working culture for the women who were employed there. Well, that's not Rupert Murdoch's first go-round. And if you've proved yourself to be a, to proved yourself to be a liability in these other regards, again, it's not going to um, endear you to him. So get rid. Let's wrap up. Ash, my thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.